Welcome, freaks and weirdos, across all interdimensional frequencies and whatever wavelength you might be tuning in today to the Mental Pop Podcast brought to you by Primordial Productions. My name is Matt, and I'll be your host today. A big shout out and raise a toast to Nevermind by Nirvana, which celebrated its 30th anniversary this week. Now, holy hell, I was 12 years old when Nevermind came out, right on the verge of being a teenager. And that band and the death of Kurt Cobain affected uh, so many kids at the time. And whether you love or hate Nirvana, there's no denying the impact they had on music and a generation. And a legacy that continues well into the 21st century. We had Tool, Faith No More, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, Stone Temple Pilots, Soundgarden, Rage Against the Machine, Bjork, Tori Amos, and Portishead, and so many more. Uh, performers and artists at their creative prime. And those of us who were around at the time, we were lucky to have experienced that, especially if we were teenagers. The musical output of the 90s was magnificent. And no, I wouldn't say it was Mozart or Beethoven, but I think it will, like classical music, stand the test of time. Isn't it amazing to think that records have only been around like 100 years, and CDs have only been around like 30 years, and digital streaming has only been around for the past 10 or 15 years? My oh my, how the time flies, and how it went from phonographs in the 1940s to digital downloads in the 2020s. We went from the birth of photography in the early 1800s to 750 billion selfies in the 21st century. We went from the very first newspaper comic strip of the Yellow Kid in 1895 to over 700 episodes of The Simpsons in 2021. All in a little more than a century. In the past 150 years have been a time of exponential scientific and technological growth. I won't argue that. Yet we still aren't living in space hotels and zipping through the sky in flying cars as was predicted by leading experts in the 1950s and 60s. In the future, you'll have a hotel room in outer space, and with only one pill, your ass will look perfect as you fly around on your personal jetpack. As I mentioned, this is the new Mental Pop podcast. But what is Mental Pop? Why, it's a new podcast. Because, honestly, there just aren't enough podcasts out there today. And one thing I kind of want to start out with today, I don't intend for this podcast just to be about me and my opinions on things. And if I do present my opinions, I'll try to make them as informed and as neutral as possible. Neutral about political or religious affiliation or any uh, real affiliation other than to the exciting adventures uh, this podcast might take me on a week-to-week basis. Just like there are probably too many podcasts out there these days, so too are there too many over-opinionated people trying to force division and politics down other people's throats. And that's definitely not what I want to express here on this weekly program. My approach is neutral. In fact, that I am disgusted by both the left and the right and the division that both sides are perpetrating on the American people. I'm sick of the so-called woke. I'm sick of flat earthers. I'm sick of QAnon. I'm sick of social media domination in general. I'm sick of hearing about 18-year-old TikTok celebrities, whatever the hell that is. I'm sick of Instagram famous. I'm sick of endless streaming channels. And I'm pissed off at cancel culture. And we'll be talking more about cancel culture here in a minute. We all know about divide and conquer and possibly never before in the modern era. Has divide and conquer been so prevalent as it has been in the past two years with endless media bombardment and nonstop political hogwash spewing out of every news outlet? But in any case, welcome to the Mental Pod. 
a mental pop podcast. Let's get down to business so I can try to keep these damn episodes at under an hour and try not to be too long-winded and boring. All right, first off, what's been going on the past week? Uh, Please let me entertain a little five-minute rant on Joe Biden and his tanking approval rating. And again, I don't say that coming from a a rightist point of view, and this isn't a show about politics, because I was definitely not a fan of Trump either. And I couldn't stand hearing about the dude on every media outlet or hearing from Trump nonstop for five years. Uh, But Joe Biden is already getting scrutinized by mainstream media outlets like MSN. So you know that he's really fumbling right now. Anyway, Joe Biden, again, in a recent speech, went on to talk about how his patience is wearing thin and blaming some 75 million unvaccinated Americans uh, for all of our economic problems and why we can't return to so-called normal. And when he was getting his own booster shot, he was asked how many, how many, what percentage of the American people need to get vaccinated before we can return to normal. And he said uh, about 97, 98 percent of us need to be vaccinated before we can return to normal. And shaming and talking down to the unvaccinated, saying that their selfishness is costing this country dearly. Now, first off, what kind of president talks down to some 75 million Americans and acts like it's his job to reprimand them as if he were a stern parent? And if Biden was your parent, you can probably bet that he'd be touching and sniffing you inappropriately at every opportunity. I'm sorry, folks, that shot was a little bit below the belt there. And speaking of below the belt, Mr. Biden would like you to spend a little time below his belt. You know what I'm saying? (sighs) Again, I was not a fan of Trump, and I hated hearing the man speak. I was not entertained or intellectually stimulated by Trump. Thought he was a liar. Thought he was corrupt. Had absolutely no semblance of moral authority or integrity. But at least Trump was always directing his ire and complaints against the politicians and news outlets. uh, Not necessarily against the American people themselves. And who cares, because both presidents suck, as far as I'm concerned. But Biden wants to talk about overwhelmed hospitals and how unvaccinated Americans are costing us dearly. However, what he failed to mention is that hospitalizations and deaths are on the decline right now. And many experts are saying that Delta has peaked in the United States. Biden also doesn't mention that hospitals being supposedly overwhelmed is also partially the result of thousands and thousands of healthcare workers, frontline workers, and nurses who are being fired, suspended, or are quitting their jobs due to the vaccine mandates that he himself has instituted. It's estimated that just in New York, as many as 75,000 healthcare workers are soon out of a job due to termination or quitting because of mandates. And that's just in New York. Keep in mind, these are the same people who at this time last year were being called essential heroes and who were on the front line of treating COVID and literally trying to help people and save their lives. Yet now they are to blame for all of the problems of this country. And New York accounts for a huge portion of the COVID deaths in the United States or being attributed to COVID deaths, especially during the early stages of lockdown. Yet some 16% of healthcare workers in New York are refusing vaccine mandates at the cost of their jobs. And what are they doing? They're sending the National Guard in to replace people in hospitals across America who are quitting or being terminated because of vaccine mandates. Imagine what the percentage of healthcare workers across the country must be if nearly 16% of the healthcare workers out of New York are being fired or quitting. 20 to 25% of all healthcare workers across the country? I don't have those exact numbers. That would be interesting to find out. Nor does Biden mention that, according to some statistics, an estimated 12% of African Americans are fully vaccinated. Only 12%. Or at least the rate of African Americans being vaccinated is much lower compared to the rest of the country. Black folks have a long history of distrusting the government 
and distrusting vaccines, as well as mandates and passports and special IDs in order to enter public buildings. So when he's shaming and blaming Americans for the current state of affairs, uh, the majority of those he's ridiculing are actually African-Americans. And it'll be all too easy to turn this around and say that Biden is, once again, being racist. If Trump was blaming Americans, knowing that a huge chunk of unvaccinated are African-Americans, I'm sure Trump would have been called a racist. And that it was the African-Americans' right to choose whether or not to get vaccinated. If you don't vote for me, then you ain't black. And obviously you aren't vaccinated either, apparently. In fact, one of the uh, leaders of the BLM movement in New York, uh, he's standing up to vaccine mandates right now, saying they're... Uh, the African-American community should not be forced to take a vaccine or have vaccine passports and ID cards in order to enter businesses. Of course, this BLM leader uh, is also saying vaccine mandates are specifically targeting blacks and minorities, but that's beside the point. In essence, Biden is blaming hundreds of thousands of healthcare workers, teachers, police, firefighters, and a vast majority of the American uh, African-American population for the problems in the country and why his approval rating is slipping. And then you'll read comments on some of these news articles by angry and overly opinionated and self-righteous woke folks who demand that people just do your part and get vaccinated because you're putting everybody else at risk. They're directing these comments at the healthcare workers themselves. The healthcare workers are now being blamed by some of these people as being responsible for the spread of COVID. And all of this, despite how many tens of thousands of Afghan refugees have recently come into the country with lax vaccination requirements. While just last week, tens of thousands of Haitians tried to flood in at the border, and 12,000 of them are now in America with no vaccine requirements. And I'm not opposed to immigration, and it's far from it, but there should be a due process, just like there is virtually every other country on the planet. But we're telling tax-paying Americans that they must get vaccinated to keep a job but are allowing tens of thousands of Afghani refugees and Haitians into the country with no mandatory vaccine requirements or even proof of their health records. And I'm not saying immigrants should be forced into a vaccination either, but all this seems pretty sketchy, to say the least. Yes, the utter hypocrisy and complete breakdown of cognitive facilities and overwhelming mental illness taking place right now is astounding. It's no wonder or big surprise that according to a recent study by the National Alliance of Mental Illness, that an estimated 20.6% of U.S. adults and 16.5% of kids ages 6 to 18 are currently experiencing mental health issues. Some 9 million Americans are experiencing mental health issues, along with addiction and substance abuse. There are 50,000 suicides in the U.S. annually and nearly 1.5 million suicide attempts in the U.S. annually. And this study was from 2019. So imagine how this has all likely increased uh, exponentially in the last two years since COVID started. And how many of these people are medicating? How much is the pharmaceutical industry annually making just from mental health treatment or antidepressants or anti-anxiety medications, etc., etc.? They want us anxious and fearful and mentally ill and depressed and suicidal. The media and the government And Big Pharma wants us mentally unstable by their definition of mentally unstable and what they can then label as mentally ill. The powers that be actually want us sick. They make money and gain control from our sickness, be it physical or mental. It's an epidemic. Look at other recent studies which show that social media like Instagram and Facebook are very harmful to kids and really only has an all-around negative effect for humanity in general. 
And folks, I know this probably sounds cynical of me. I know most people would rather just discuss rainbows and the weather and sports, sports, sports 24-7 because it's easier, an easier pill to swallow. But please stay tuned to the last segment of this episode. We'll be talking extensively about the eugenics movement in the United States uh, from 1900 into the 1930s and 1940s. Uh, so we can see just how the U.S. government uh, treated mentally ill people and minorities in the first four decades of the 20th century. But I'm getting off topic here. Uh, one more thing worth mentioning is that recent data, it stated that natural immunity and antibodies from previous COVID infection is 11 times more likely to have beneficial impact than any vaccine, even three doses of a vaccine. Natural immunity and previous COVID infection is 11 times more helpful to our immune systems than the vaccine. Yet terms like natural immunity are being flagged on social media as false news and without context. Another thing which pisses me off uh, is now articles are coming out saying the vaccinated are not as infectious as the unvaccinated. Despite article after article coming out uh, for nine months now saying that vaccinated people carry just as much of a viral load as the unvaccinated. We talked a little bit last week about breakthrough infections and people like comedians Chris Rock and talk show host Wendy Williams. Again, this week, we had two fully vaccinated members of the View uh, television program who tested positive for COVID and were taken off the stage as the actual show was filming to be put into quarantine. And hopefully those hosts from The View will stay in quarantine indefinitely. But the point is, they are downplaying breakthrough infections and overhyping the vaccine as the solution. When we know uh, you're 11 times more likely and better off uh, not getting vaccinated at all and just dealing with the mild symptoms of COVID, that some 80% of those who contract COVID experience just mild symptoms and thus build up a natural immunity, it's easy to understand why a whole lot of people just want to take their chances with it. When only 12% of the U.S. population has tested positive for COVID in 20 months uh, from something that has a 98% survival rate, it's easy to see why some people are hesitant uh, just to jump on the vaccine bandwagon when we're seeing that companies like Pfizer are uh, having record-breaking profits and the pharmaceutical industry in general is sitting on a huge financial windfall. Maybe it's because uh, reports are showing thousands of people have died from the COVID vaccine and thousands more have had serious uh, adverse side effects. I personally know people who have had adverse effects from the COVID vaccine uh, that they said was worse than actually having the flu and took them off their feet for a few days. Also, a person I work with was out for two weeks, and when they came back, uh, they told us their dad had died, who was in good health and in his 50s and who hadn't had COVID yet, got vaccinated, was rushed to the hospital two days later where he died. And not only did he die, they didn't let his family see him because of COVID regulations. No, people, I'm not trying to tell you the vaccine is going to kill you or make you sick. And I'm surely not trying to tell you they're going to put a microchip in you. But I've personally heard more bad accounts of the vaccine than good. But we must unify and rectify and justify our thoughts and actions, brothers and sisters. We must unite to untie the chains that bind. And maybe, just maybe, it's that some people just don't trust the Great Reset. And the Great Reset is the elite's idea to use COVID uh, to restructure world economics uh, while small businesses have declined by as much as 50% and the wealthiest billionaires in America have become nearly $1.5 trillion richer due to COVID just in the past year. Maybe that's why a large chunk of the U.S. population is wary and skeptical. Maybe it's because nobody 
Republicans or Democrats really wanted you as president, Mr. Joe Biden, but we're left with no other options in this sorry state of U.S. political affairs. And also, Mr. Biden, if not for COVID happening and the mass racial protests and riots last year, the Democrats would have had absolutely no platform with which to try to win an election. Anyway, to close my little five or ten minute rant on Biden, the dude is terrible. I'm already as sick of hearing from Biden as I was of Trump, and Biden hardly ever even talks and has only been president for nine months. And in nine months, it's looked like nothing but failure upon failure. And talking about how impatient he is with Americans who won't bow down and take the shot for the greater good. But make no mistake, while this all looks like bumbling and fumbling and a certain level of incompetence, the rich are still getting richer, the poor are still getting poorer, suckers like us still go and vote for one or two clowns every four years, and the mainstream media is still selling billions and billions and billions of dollars in ad space. In too many ways, everything is going according to plan. Sit back, relax, trust the plan, watch the show unfold, go buy more shit off Amazon, and take the needle, turn on your neighbor, Report your friends and family. Spend more time plugged into social media. Let us control your algorithm. The Great Reset. Anyway, that's all I'm going to talk about COVID on today's episode. If you want to hear a ton more information and stats and perspective and facts and figures and my opinions uh, and perceptions on this subject, I recommend you go back a couple episodes and listen to our two and a half hour presentation on nothing but COVID-19 over the past two years. I think there's a whole lot of useful information and insightful uh, presentation with that episode. I prayed a lot to God during this time. And you know what? God did answer our prayers. He made the smartest men and women, the scientists, the doctors, the researchers. He made them come up with a vaccine. That is from God to us. And we must say thank you, God. Thank you. And I wear my vaccinated necklace all the time to say I'm vaccinated. All of you, yes, I know you're vaccinated. You're the smart ones, but you know there's people out there who aren't listening to God and what God wants. You know this. You know who they are. I need you to be my apostles. I need you to go out and talk about it and say we owe this to each other. We love each other. All right, so what else has been going on this past week? What are you all reading out there? Me? Well, thanks for asking. I'm finishing up the five-book Frankenstein series from author Dean Koontz. And as we enter October of 2021, my How This Year Did Fly, please allow me to share a short quote from the introduction to book three of the Frankenstein series by Dean Koontz. Quote, This trilogy is dedicated to the late Mr. Lewis, C.S. Lewis, who long ago realized that science was being politicized, that its primary goal was changing from knowledge to power, that it was also becoming scientism, and in that ism is the end of humanity. So I'm reading some Kuntz and Bentley Little and skimming uh, through uh, hundreds and hundreds of short stories in the mammoth books of horror. Uh, But what are you reading? I always ask that question online, and usually no one answers, and I suspect uh, that's going to be the case this time as well. Did you know that it's estimated 32 million Americans are considered functionally illiterate or only read at a fifth grade level? 
32 million Americans can't read or only read at a fifth grade level of comprehension. Uh, so if you're an avid reader and you love to read, uh, here's another cheers today for the love of books and literature. And you are lucky and blessed to be literate and functioning slightly above the national average. Uh, send me a message. Tell me what you're reading right now as we are slowly but surely entering the Halloween season. But also right now, worth mentioning, we are right in the middle of Banned Books Week, which runs September 26th to October 2nd. And every year, Banned Books Week shows us that cancel culture has always been around from those smug and self-righteous ninnies who think that books and literature are going to corrupt America's youth. In the 1950s, parents and religious leaders were confiscating and burning their kids' comic book collections uh, because they thought it would contribute to juvenile and moral delinquency. Uh, which just goes to show you how intolerant and rather moronic human beings can sometimes be. But hey, I guess it beats continuing to burn witches at the stake. In the 1880s, the popular Penny Dreadful books were banned and confiscated and burned. And in the 1700s, there was a movement of so-called graveyard poets who were uh, starting uh, stated to be contributing to the downfall of society, and their works were banned and confiscated and burned as well. We have times throughout history where different versions of the Bible were banned and confiscated and burned. But again, we are now in Banned Books Week. And what are some of the classic books that have been banned over the years and deemed not fit for mass public consumption by the so-called experts and moral authorities of our society? Why, such great and important works as Catcher in the Rye by J.D. Salinger, The Grapes of Wrath and Mice, of, and Mice and Men by John Steinbeck, To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee, the Color Purple by Alice Walker, Ulysses by James Joyce, Lord of the Flies by William Golding, 1984, and Animal Farm, both by George Orwell, Brave New World by Aldous Huxley, Invisible Man by Ralph, Ralph Ellison, uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest by Ken Casey, Slaughterhouse Five and Cat's Cradle, both by Kurt Vonnegut, A Clockwork Orange by Anthony Burgess, Naked Lunch by William S. Burroughs, and many, many more. And yes, we still have schools and churches and religious types uh, who call to ban books, even in 2021, showing just how ignorant and intolerant humans actually can be, uh, continuing into the 21st century. These so-called moral and ethical authority figures and vocal online campaigns of censorship and hypocrisy. And I mention this, obviously, uh, because... Uh, there are some amazing and very cool books on that list, important books, such as 1984 and Animal Farm by Orwell. But also to show a parallel between this smug and rather idiotic call to ban books and hold massive book burnings and how this ties into what we see today as cancel culture, where anything that it seems as mildly offensive, even if offensive by the most vague and foolish standards of offensiveness, draws the ire of thousands of internet trolls who demand that they get their way and have something banned and boycotted just so they feel a sense of power. Jokes and comedians get canceled in this pitiful, PC, politically correct culture of fake moral outrage and smug online superiority complexes. And honestly, when the term PC came into play and political correctness, oh, about 20 years ago or so, that was the beginning of the end of freedom of speech and freedom of thought and expression. You look at so many comedians of the 80s and 90s, Hilarious comedians or hilarious and well-loved uh, comedy movies out of the 70s, 80s, and 90s. There's absolutely no way that a lot of that stuff would fly by today's standards. 
There would be hundreds or thousands of trolls online uh, demanding uh, these movies be banned and these uh, comedians be taken off the stage. They want to ban, block, boycott, and no longer allow people to tell jokes or make a living. Comedians like George Carlin and Bill Hicks, two of my favorite, absolute favorite comedians, and there's no way they would be able to say a lot of the things they were saying in the 1990s. We're seeing an exponential and rapid growth of cancel culture. Now going after history itself, demanding we take down monuments and rewrite history books, etc., etc. And this might sound conspiratorial of me, but I fully think that being politically correct only serves the purposes of politicians and that cancel culture will ultimately, in the next several decades, only go to erase the facts of slavery ever even happening. I think cancel culture will continue to chip away and erode history to the level that within the next 25 to 50 years, the subject of slavery won't even be a topic, as the majority won't even know it existed. I've seen this happen in my own lifetime. As a kid growing up, it was pretty much a widely accepted fact that tens of thousands of slaves were used to build the pyramids. Then about 15 years ago or so, the consensus shifted to, no, it wasn't slaves, but very well-paid craftsmen and architects and indentured servants. There were no slaves in Egypt. And this is despite the fact that one of the huge focal points of the Bible is about the exodus of slaves out of Egypt, and we know there was slavery in Egypt. But I want to get off the topic and get on to the topic of the Bible, the exodus, because that's a whole different subject. And there are a whole lot of theories and facts about that that I'll probably delve into sometime in another episode. But my point being, nine times out of ten, cancel culture and book banning and political correctness is nothing but a huge load of bullshit and a tool of the coward and the ignorant scoundrel. You don't like the subject matter of a book? Don't read it. You don't get to tell other people what they are allowed to read or what comedians or jokes they are allowed to find funny. And to attempt to do so is in itself a form of fascism. And, again, not to get political, but it seems that it's usually those who are left-leaning in their political ideology who want to pretend they are fighting fascism when they themselves are the most brown-shirt fascist of all. And seriously, I mean, I know sometimes it can be damning, but can we stop going back to people's tweets from 12 years ago as an attempt to destroy their careers over a decade later after their comments were made? People do change, and people do grow. And sometimes people are just drunk at 3 a.m. and say some crazy stuff that, yeah, they probably regret later, uh, but it shouldn't be used as a reason to try and destroy their careers 10 years after the fact because they made a lewd or disturbing comment on Twitter. Modern society is just kind of pitiful and pathetic, isn't it? And I'm not trying to be judgmental of civilization or of myself, but it's sometimes easy to understand why some people might see humanity as a virus or a plague of locusts. Do our accomplishments outweigh our sins as a human culture? And what is culture but a growth of bacteria? What is culture but a growth of bacteria? It's sad to see that the height of our evolution right now is so many ill-informed and over-opinionated ninnies whose only accomplishments are boycotting and banning other people and demanding uh, mandates on other people. I'm going to close by saying this, banning books, burning books, cancel culture, and political correctness is not so very far removed from things like the Inquisitions and burning of witches, where huge crowds of common people would gather around just to watch someone get tortured and burned alive or beheaded in the middle of the public square. 
Some historians say, uh, in fact, uh, the Inquisitions were at least halfway fueled by common and everyday and probably poor people who had little entertainment uh, besides watching someone get tortured and burned alive or beheaded in the middle of the public square. Their only other entertainment was church, uh, if that tells you how bored they were. Uh, so, some historians say that the Inquisitions was at least partially uh, fueled by common and everyday people uh, who wanted some entertainment. So they started reporting supposed satanic activity and reporting their neighbors as witches because of suspicious activity. And like that of the Roman Colosseum and bread and circuses since the beginning of time, the common people gathered round and cheered during public executions. Vendors sold t-shirts! It was a fun time for the entire family, and boy, oh boy, I'm sure glad I'm not one of those poor heathens getting tortured up there on the rack. They'd hold tailgate parties on the back of horse and buggies while they drank mead and celebrated the burning of the local witch. <clears throat> the unclean one. Now think about that for a minute. The persecution of the unclean. Humanity is not so very far removed at all from the religious fervor of the Inquisitions and burning witches, which was just only a few hundred years ago. In a lot of ways, humanity has not evolved. Not in the uh, cyber world of social media, it's reverting back to the mentality of the Dark Ages and accusing anyone who thinks differently or has differing opinions as being evil and in need of being deleted just because a small but overly opinionated and overly vocal crowd of trolls uh, vehemently disagrees with them. And please keep in mind, I'm going to keep the running theme here as the final portion of today's broadcast. Again, we'll be detailing some of the practices of the American-made eugenics movement, circa 1900 to 1930, which forcibly castrated or sterilized over 60,000 people in this country. Not so very long ago. Always look on the bright side of life. Always look on the light side of life If life seems jolly rotten There's something you've forgotten And that's to laugh and smile and dance and sing When you're feeling in the dumps Don't be silly chumps Just purse your lips and whistle That's the thing Ain't always look on the bright side of life Always look on the right side of life. Ladies and gentlemen, for our final segment, please allow me to start with a quote for you today, as you might be very surprised to find out the source of this very controversial statement. Quote, Someday we will realize that the prime duty, the inescapable duty of the good citizens of the right type, is to leave his or her blood behind him in the world, and that we have no business to permit the perpetuation of citizens of the wrong type. The great problem of civilization is to secure a relative increase of the valuable as compared with the less valuable or noxious elements in the population. The problem cannot be met unless we give full consideration to the immense influence of heredity. I wish very much the wrong people could be prevented entirely from breeding. And when the evil nature of these people is sufficiently flagrant, this should be done. Criminals should be sterilized and feeble-minded persons forbidden to leave offspring behind them. The emphasis should be laid on getting desirable people to breed. 
Now, this quote could have come from the lips of countless political figures during party rallies and meetings throughout Nazi Germany during the 1930s, but it wasn't. The quote I just stated came from none other than the 26th President of the United States, Theodore Roosevelt, and it represented the so-called enlightened view of millions of Americans caught up in the ideological movement that has been virtually written out of the American history books, and that is in the eugenics movement. Uh, between 1900 to 1930, and even later, the idea of eugenics or selective breeding captured the attention of America's leading reformers, academics, professionals, scientists, and political leaders. And folks, before we proceed, I want to take a moment to say something here to those who are now continually regurgitating the mantra of trust the science and follow the science. Less than 100 years ago in the United States, eugenics and all the things I'm about to relate to you today, that was the accepted science. Forced sterilizations and castrations and encouraging only what was considered the best of the best to breed. For a reference point, my grandfather, uh, he's now deceased, uh, but he was born in 1904, just as the concept of eugenics was taking off in America, and the ideals of eugenics were popular and mainstream until the 1930s and 40s in the United States. Uh, so it was only a couple generations ago uh, that eugenics was considered, you know, uh, science, mainstream science, fashion, uh, the vogue fashion of science of the day. Not too long ago. But let's proceed. By the turn of the century until the Great Depression, eugenics was embraced by the creme de la creme of the progressive forces as a cure-all for the economic inequities and social ills that were threatening the fabric of American life. It took hold at a time when reformers were becoming increasingly disheartened by the seeming inability to deal effectively with the escalating problems of crime, poverty, and social unrest. The eugenics phenomenon was spawned in the wake of the first massive immigration wave, militant union organizing drives, and the mushrooming growth of the city slums in the late 1890s. It reached its peak in the chilling isolationist atmosphere following World War I, which produced the first Great Red Scare in America. And guys, here we are 100 years later, and we're still talking about Russian collusion and Russia manipulating our elections and Russia, Russia, Russia being behind everything. Anyway, during this time, America's old ruling families combined forces with the upper middle class academics and professionals in an active alliance to promote the notion of a eugenics policy in the United States. The elite ruling factions were becoming increasingly paranoid over the loss of control over the economic and political machinery of the country, and for the first time, a growing population of Irish and Jewish and Italian immigrant groups were rising up, demanding a piece of the action in the early years of the 20th century. Likewise, those in academic circles were desperately looking for a reason that social and economic reforms weren't working as expected, and thus both those in academia, as well as the ruling class of multimillionaires and upper and middle class citizens, uh, convincing them that they themselves were the best people. And it was, in fact, these invading immigrants and foreigners who were destroying the very fabric of American civilization. That's what they were convinced of. Likewise, and most importantly, at a time when science was being heralded as the linchpin of American greatness and a roadmap to manifest destiny, eugenics offered a scientific explanation for social and economic problems and a scientific approach to their solution. According to scholar and eugenics historian Mark H. Holler, the eugenics movement became enormously powerful and influential in the United States because it appealed to so-called the best people, or those who wanted to believe they were the best people. It was these same best people who overnight turned eugenics into a form of secular evangelism. 
They preached at their newfound creed in university lecture halls before professional conventions and on political platforms from one end of the country to the other, and the message was always the same. America's salvation hinged on its resolve to eliminate the biologically inferior types from breeding and thus creating the perfect human race and perfect society. Now, while eugenics really took off in the United States in the year 1900 and the ideology dominated for the next three plus decades, the idea of eugenics itself was really nothing new. Uh, It was writing in the Republic that the philosopher Plato stated that the best of both sexes ought to be brought together as often as possible and the worst as seldom as possible and that the former unions ought to be reared and that of the later abandoned if the flock is to attain first-rate excellence. And who we consider as the father of modern-day eugenics was none other than Sir Francis Galton, who was cousins uh, with Charles Darwin, who of course is well known for his theories and ideas on evolution. Influenced by Darwin's work, Origin of Species, Sir Francis Galton wrote the book entitled Hereditary Genius in 1869, which basically concluded that modern Europeans possessed much greater natural abilities and talents and intelligence than those who were deemed to be of the lower races. He then speculated on the potential potential of a eugenics program, stating, uh, There is nothing either in the history of domestic animals or in that of evolution to make us doubt that a race of sane men may be formed, who shall be as much superior mentally and morally to the modern Europeans as the modern European is from the lowest of the Negro races. Galton announced his hopes for humanity's future by asserting that, quote, Just as it is easy to obtain by careful selection a permanent breed of dogs or horses gifted with peculiar powers, so too would it be quite practical to produce a highly gifted race of men by similar means. And let me say something here, folks. I am absolutely not a promoter or a proponent of eugenics. Uh, But that being said, eugenics has been with us in some form or fashion for hundreds and thousands of years, Uh, from breeding plants and animals, cross-breeding plants and animals, to creating new species, uh, to new domestic breeds of cats and dogs, etc., etc. And most humans think that it's perfectly fine, and that's considered progress. Yet, when we put those same ideals and applications towards human beings, it becomes a very taboo issue. My point is, for much of as humanity has cross-bred plants and animals for the past several hundred to several thousand years, is it any wonder... Or should it be surprising that these same ideals eventually turned themselves towards humanity itself? And hell, it's a little off topic here, and not something we're going to get into today's episode, but maybe in a future episode, but it's in the same notion of eugenics where many scholars and historians believe the original myths out of Sumeria and Mesopotamia originate some 6,000 years ago, with breeding new races of humans, uh, which were to be ruled over and used as slave labor. Uh, But again, I'm not touching the subject of the Anunnaki or uh, Sumerian creation myths today, Uh, but just to state that the concepts of eugenics and selective breeding have been around for as long as human civilization. Uh, But to bring us back to the 19th and 20th century, a utopian socialist by the name of uh, John Humphrey Noyes uh, was highly inspired by the works of Francis Galton and stated, quote, Every racehorse, every straight-backed bull, every premium pig tells us what we can do and what we must do for humanity. Taking a cue from the book Hereditary Genius by Francis Galton and published in 1869, it was in the same year that John Humphrey Noyes uh, created his own experiment where 53 women and 38 men signed a pledge to participate in an experiment to breed healthy perfectionists by matching those uh, most advanced in health and so-called perfection. 
So the first modern experiments of eugenics was taking place in the 1860s, before finally spreading like wildfire across the United States, starting in the year 1900. And another interesting idea from Galton's concept of eugenics, and one that was later uh, adopted by American eugenicist reformers in their campaign to purify the racial stock of the nation, was charity. Charity, said Galton, should, quote, help the strong rather than the weak, and the man of tomorrow rather than the man of today. Let knowledge and foresight control the blind emotions and impetuous instincts. Galton also stated that he regrets that there exists a sentiment, for the most part unreasonable, against the gradual extinction of an inferior race. Talking about genocide there. And it was with certain advancements in the understanding of science and genetics over the coming years, which it is uh, proven erroneous, uh, by the way, in later decades, that the scientific basis and rationale of eugenics began to convince many people of its authenticity and importance, getting a whole lot of upper class and middle class folks to jump on the bandwagon across the U.S. In the early years of the 1900s, America's leading scientists and geneticists were largely responsible uh, for spearheading uh, the notion of eugenics. Um, the reason for this being in their own uh, speeches and in their own writings, they were sounding an alarm for what they considered to be the decline in the hereditary quality of the American people. Scientists became active in leadership roles in the eugenics cause in the hope that they could reverse that trend. With almost religious vengeance, these scientists jumped right up the center state of American politics and demonstrated for all uh, their crusading fervor was at least on par with their scientific accomplishments. Uh, some statements from the time include this by Michael F. Geyer of the University of Wisconsin, who proclaimed that all available data indicates that, the, in fact, our civilization, uh, the future of our civilization stands on the fate of heredity. While the famed geneticist Edward G. Conklin stated, quote, though although our human stock includes some of the most intelligent, moral, and progressive people in the world, it includes a disproportionately large number of the worst types. Not to be outdone, Professor H.S. Jennings of John Hopkins University informed the American public that the troubles of the world and the remedy of these troubles lie fundamentally in the diverse constitutions of human beings. Laws, customs, education, materials uh, surrounding are the creations of men and reflect their fundamental nature. To attempt to correct these things is merely to treat specific symptoms. To go to the root of the troubles, a better breed of men must be produced, one that shall not contain the inferior types. When a matter breed has come taken over the business world, laws, customs, education, and material conditions will take care of themselves. And guys, yes, I know this was 100 years ago, uh, which really wasn't that long ago. Uh, but I want to state here that the last quote comes from Johns Hopkins University, uh, which today is one of the leading experts on COVID-19 and funded with tens of millions of dollars by Bill Gates. And I'll talk a little bit more about Bill Gates uh, later on. In this segment, but I just wanted to make a comment on that. Uh, then, in 1906, the American Breeders Association is set up as the first functioning committee on eugenics. Its main agenda was to investigate and report on hereditary uh, in the human race as the emphasis, the value of superior blood, and the menace to society of inferior blood. Uh, one of the members of the American Breeders Association, Mr. Charles Davenport, uh, would go on to set up the official eugenics record office in Cold Springs Harbor, New York, 
By 1910, eugenics societies had sprang up in cities all across the country. Among the most influential were the Galton Society of New York and Eugenics Education Society of Chicago, St. Louis, Minnesota, Utah, San Francisco, and Michigan. In 1913, the Eugenics Association began, and in 1922, the Eugenics Committee of the United States, later the American Eugenics Society, was formed. By World War I, eugenics was a favorite topic, not only in schools and on political forums, but at women's club meetings, church meetings, professional gatherings, and popular magazines of the day. Some people even called for a basic change of our form of government to accommodate eugenics ideology such as William McDougall, chairman of the psychology department at Harvard University, who stated that he feared lower breeds would start outnumbering the best stock, so he advocated for a caste system for America based on biological differences in which political rights would depend on one's caste. Academics were so convinced of the wisdom and virtue of applied eugenics that many of them began to make such statements as Charles R. Van Heys, president of the University of Wisconsin, when he stated, We know enough about eugenics so that, if the knowledge were applied, the defective classes would disappear within a generation. By 1915, many of the leading geneticists, scientists, and educators followed the same belief. A well-known Yale economist of the time, Irving Fisher, stated that, quote, Eugenics is comparably the greatest concern of the human race. While a teacher at Harvard, Ernest A. Hooten, stated, quote, Crime is the resultant of the impact of environment upon low-grade human organisms, and the solution to the crime problem is the extermination of the physically, mentally, and morally unfit, or if that seems too harsh, their complete segregation in a socially aseptic environment. By 1928, over three-fourths of all colleges and universities in the United States were teaching courses on eugenics. Let me repeat that. By 1928, over three-fourths of all colleges and universities in the United States were teaching courses on eugenics. The media also jumped on the bandwagon when the New York Times stated, quote, Labor disturbances are brought about by foreigners and demonstrations are always mobs composed of foreign scum, beer-smelling Germans, ignorant Bohemians, uncouth Poles, and wild-eyed Russians. The founders of the newspaper, uh, The Nation and The New Republic, were both crusaders for eugenics reform. Edwin Lawrence Godkin, founder of The Nation newspaper, believed that only those of superior biological stock should run affairs in this country, and Herbert David Crowley of The New Republic was convinced that blacks were a race possessed of moral and intellectual qualities inferior to those of the white man. In the magazine Good Housekeeping, which was a favorite for presidents to speak their mind, President Coolidge stated, quote, There are racial considerations too grave to be brushed aside for any sentimental reasons. Coolidge believed that biological laws tell us that certain divergent people will not mix or blend, and he concluded that Nordics propagate themselves successfully while breeding with other races shows genetic deterioration on both sides. The famous inventor Alexander Graham Bell while speaking uh, before the American Breeders Association in Washington in 1908, remarked, We have learned to apply the laws of heredity so as to modify and improve our breeds of domestic animals. Can the knowledge and experience so gained be available to man so as to enable him to improve the species to which he himself belongs? Alexander Graham Bell believed that students of genetics possessed the knowledge to improve the race and that public acceptance was needed in order to implement eugenics policies and practices on a wide scale. Now, something a little sad, and I didn't want to get into this, but if you look into uh, 
notable and uh, creative genius uh, Nikola Tesla. Nikola Tesla was also a proponent, a proponent of the eugenics movement. And there's some rather disturbing quotes uh, from Nikola Tesla on the future of eugenics and how eugenics uh, will basically lead us into the 21st century. So we can only, only guess at that. Uh, if a genius like Nikola Tesla thought eugenics was the future of history and science, where are we now? Feminist icon Margaret Sanger, founder of the president of Planned, uh, President of Planned Parenthood International and the leading voice for the use of birth control programs, was a true believer in the biological superiority and inferiority of different groups. Sanger is on record as having stated, quote, It is a curious but neglected fact that the very types which in all kindness should be obliterated from the human stock have been permitted to reproduce themselves and to perpetuate their group, uh, suckered by the policy of indiscriminate charity of warm hearts uncontrolled by cool heads. There is only one reply to a request for a higher birth rate among the intelligent and that it is to ask the government to first take the burden of the insane and feeble-minded from your back. Sterilization is the only solution. And as I mentioned Bill Gates uh, a couple minutes ago, and people can draw uh, their own conclusion from this, make of this what they will, but Bill Gates's father, William Gates, uh, was on the board of Planned Parenthood. Now, some might state that this is a flimsy connection of being con or being uh, conspiratorial, uh, but it's a well-known fact that uh, Planned Parenthood founder Margaret Sanger was an un unapologetic eugenicist and racist, and it's also a well-known fact that Bill Gates and the Gates Foundation has publicly stated that they are using vaccines in an effort to lower birth rates, uh, particularly in African countries. Uh, yet Gates, uh, to be fair, he also states the actual lowering of birth rates is due uh, to more vaccinated children living into adulthood, and thus mothers having less children because they don't need to worry about half of them dying uh, before they reach adulthood uh, due to diseases. Now, whatever the case, and keeping in mind the current situation with COVID and vaccines, that Bill Gates' father was on the board of Planned Parenthood, and Gates himself seems to be a bit obsessed with birth control and lowering birth rates. Uh, so again, make of that what you will. Uh, but there's definitely a connection uh, with this type of ideology. And it wasn't just Planned Parenthood. The Boy Scout movement in America was attributable to some degree to the interest in eugenics. David Starr Jordan, president of Stanford University and devout eugenicist, was also vice president of the Boy Scouts of America in its early days and believed that the Scout program could help establish the, quote, new eugenic man. A bizarre twist in the history of the eugenics movement was Fitter Family Contests, run by the American Eugenic Society, where blue ribbons were presented at county and state fairs all over the Midwest to those families that could produce the best pedigree of their ancestry. Families were judged on their physical and mental qualities right alongside pigs and cows at county fairs. The acceptance of eugenics uh, by much of the general public as a scientifically sound theory was due in large part to the early and enthusiastic support of eugenics by some of America's most prominent scientists. The scientists legitimized the theory of eugenics in the public mind, although in the end, uh, they largely refused to accept any responsibility for the consequences of its application. And this application of eugenics, as we're about to discuss, uh, represents some of the darkest pages in American history. <laughs> Now, folks, to take a short breather here, and I apologize, this episode's definitely going to run over an hour, but I feel that this is an important topic and relevant uh, to what's going on right now in 2021. 
Uh, I know there are a lot of people who think that I'm really stretching or perhaps being conspiratorial uh, or myself being ill-informed when I mention today's mantra of trust the science and follow the science. But my main point here is this, and it comes from something I just mentioned. The acceptance of eugenics by the general public as being a scientifically sound and proven and factual measure of genetic superiority is because many of the most prominent scientists, geneticists, educators, politicians, and business leaders were promoting the ideology and thus gave it credibility as being a legitimate practice. I'm not defending those average people who were lulled into the belief that they were of so-called superior stock and pure blood, etc., etc. I'm not defending the choices and beliefs that millions of Americans held during this period. But I am saying that without the push and support of mainstream science and genetics and politicians and business leaders, uh, the eugenics movement more than likely would have never existed the early years of the eugenics movement consisted of the elite traveling across the United States and setting up shop, giving speeches all over the country in order to convince average Americans, and yes, average white Americans, that they were superior and that the country was going to decline and fall apart unless the unfit and so-called genetically inferior were not allowed to continue breeding. And of course, also with the statement that races should not mix. But my key point here is this. Trust the science could have been stated a hundred years ago during the peak of the eugenics movement, just as easily as it's being thrown around today. Mainstream science of the early 20th century stated that there were superior and inferior breeds of people, and that the fate of the human race depended upon the superior to increase its breeding, while the inferior shouldn't be allowed to breed at all. Human psychology is a really fucked up thing, uh, because it's always been about division. It's always been about stirring up us versus them, and accusing the other in society. From the Inquisitions to the Salem Witch Trials to the Cold War and the Red Scare and para par paranoia movies about alien pod people and alien invaders who seek to infiltrate our society and destroy us from within, humans time and time again have a tendency to divide themselves into segregated groups of race, religion, and now more so than ever uh, to the fake left versus right false paradigm of politics. And now we can even say it's vax versus unvaxed. Uh, which Mr. Joe Biden himself, President of the United States of America, is creating this division of the healthy versus the supposedly sick, or the clean versus the unclean. I mean, can you see what's going on here? We have basically come down to dividing Americans with clean versus unclean, and I think President Biden is disgusting for attempting to do such a thing or to put it in those kinds of terms. Joe Biden, who by some interpretations recently threatened the American people with nuclear war if they stood up against the government. And we can say that, yes, science and technology have definitely made leaps and bounds in the past 100 years. But in terms of human psychology, we have barely made any progress in the past 1,000 years when it comes to human psychology. Arguments can be made that we've evolved very little in terms of our psychology and social aspects in the past 10,000 years, let alone in the past 100 years. But moving forward, and I'll try to make this quick, because I promise to try to keep these episodes uh, around an hour if I can. There's just so much to dissect with the topic of eugenics, but I'll try to make a long story short. Sterilization was uh, the major look in the eugenics playbook. Uh, and as a result of systematic and coordinated drives by eugenics advocates nationwide, tens of thousands of American citizens were involuntarily sterilized under various laws enacted by individual states shortly after the turn of the century. And not just sterilization, but castration and vasectomies. And one of the reasons I've always been so interested in the topics of uh, the topic of eugenics is that it was in my home state of Indiana, something to be proud about, 
uh, where the first sterilization laws were passed in 1907. Yes, it was in Indiana that the first sterilization laws for eugenics were passed in 1907. Uh, The bill called for the mandatory, I'll say that again, the mandatory sterilization of those confirmed criminals, idiots, imbeciles, and uh, or others in state institutions. Uh, this 1907 sterilization bill passed in Indiana was known as the Indiana Idea and helped to encourage many other states to follow suit. It was one Dr. Harry Sharp who uh, worked at an institution uh, for boys in the state um, started with the sterilization of a 19-year-old boy who was addicted to masturbation. And uh, by the end of the year, uh, where are we at? By the end of the year, uh, he had uh, sterilized 75 more kids. Yes, a kid addicted to masturbation was deemed feeble-minded and mandatorily sterilized. Among other people who were sterilized were epileptics and those who suffered from seizures. Sterilization became the easiest and most logical solution to stop those perceived as having inferior genetic stock from breeding. And let's take a little closer look at what inferior stock really entailed. One of the most utilized and adapted methods of recognizing this was from a very early form of facial recognition, which came with the 1876 book entitled The Criminal Man, published by famed uh, criminal anthropologist Caesar Lombroso. Uh, Lombroso argued in his study that potential criminals, which to him included murderers, uh, prostitutes, thieves, and rapists, all tended to have primitive brains, long arms, a hairy body, large incisor teeth, angular skulls, flattened or hooked noses, and that, like the savage, the criminal is often tattooed. Lambroso uh, believed that criminals were born, not made, and believed it was possible to composite profiles of those people most likely to commit crimes based on facial features and other genetic traits. Uh, Small, restless eyes, thick eyebrows, crooked noses, thin beards, narrow and receding foreheads. Ironically, Hollywood used many of the traits that were presented in the book The Criminal Man when casting specific roles and specific types of criminals in their films. But it was in this vague and general overview of the criminal type and the supposed types of traits of criminals or certain certain ethnic traits, uh, which constituted a good portion of judgment on whether a person was insane, had committed a crime or would even likely commit a crime in the future or that they were of an inferior type of human being. And 100 years later. We're still seeing these types of ideas come to the forefront with uh, facial recognition technology, technology that is being created to supposedly stop criminals before they commit a crime based on their facial features or appearances. Anyway, between 1907 to 1917, two new propaganda techniques were introduced by eugenics advocates, both of which greatly increased broader use of sterilization procedures. One was the emphasis on tracing your family tree, and the other came in intelligence tests, uh, both of which were primarily focused on showing that people among the institutionalized came from an inferior family tree uh, with many broken and gnarled branches and who were also unable to pass uh, standard intelligence tests and aptitude tests uh, based on normalized tests structures. Both of these tactics were used to gain more traction for mass sterilizations of perceived imbeciles and the mentally ill. One bill passed in Missouri called for the sterilization of those convicted of murder, rape, highway robbery, chicken stealing, bombing, or theft of automobiles. Yes, even the damn chicken stealers weren't safe for mandatory sterilizations under new laws being passed far and wide across the United States of America. It wasn't until 1927 that the constitutionality of these laws came to the Supreme Court, where they ruled in the case of uh, in Virginia that sterilization fell within the police 
powers of the state. The Supreme Court ruled that in Virginia, sterilization fell within the police powers of the state. The esteemed jurist Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote of the case, quote, We have seen more than once that the public welfare may call upon the best citizens for their lives. It would be strange if we could not call upon those who already sapped the strength of the state for these uh, lesser sacrifices, often felt to be such by those concerned, in order to prevent our being swamped with incompetence. It is better for all of the world if instead of waiting for their imbecility, society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. Three generations of imbeciles is enough. By 1931, 30 states had passed sterilization laws and thousands upon thousands of American citizens had been surgically fixed. It's estimated that over 60,000 Americans were forcibly castrated or sterilized throughout the fervor of the eugenics movement. And let me repeat that number. Over 60,000 Americans were forcibly castrated or sterilized throughout the fervor of the eugenics movement. And honestly, I have suspicions uh, that it might even run higher than 60,000 people. Some reports go as high as 75,000. This was 75,000 people deemed to be of inferior genetics or imbeciles or just people with mental disorders or even people who just might suffer from seizures were deemed unfit to breed. The greatest triumph for the movement came after World War I and a successful campaign to enact immigration laws based on eugenics standards. The law, which was passed in 1924 and which remained in effect until 1965, had the effect of altering the entire ethnic and racial composition of the U.S. to satisfy the standards laid down by eugenics supporters. The U.S. Secretary of Labor at the time, James J. Davis, was a huge supporter of restrictive immigration, stating, quote, America has always prided itself on having for its basic stock the so-called Nordic race. We should ban from our shores all races which are not naturalizable under the law of the land and all individuals of all races who are physically, mentally, morally, and spiritually undesirable and who constitute a menace to our civilization. Uh, Representative after representative uh, from both Democrats and Republicans were in favor of eugenics restrictions for immigrants coming into the country. Now, my friends, once again, try to make a long story short, and we're going to leave out a lot of key elements for the sake of time. It really wasn't until Hitler came to power in Germany around 1932 that the U.S.'s stance on in the ideology of eugenics in America began to cool down a little bit. And uh, what we must understand here is that Hitler and his advisors and those proponents of eugenics in Nazi Germany stated unequivocally that they were inspired by eugenics practices in the United States and that the idea of the so-called perfect Nordic specimen or the pure-blooded wasn't really their idea, uh, but that the United States had already been right in doing it for decades before Hitler had even gained any power in the 1930s. The Nazis, when proposing their own sterilization program, specifically noted the success of sterilization laws in California, uh, documented most notably by the American eugenicist uh, P.B. Popino. Uh, The Nazi program ultimately resulted in the sterilization of 360 to 375,000 persons. Hitler's Ministry of Interior, William Frick, announced to the world that, quote, the face of racial hygiene of the Third Reich and the German people will be indissolvably bound together. On June, uh, excuse me, on July 14th, 1933, the Fuhrer decreed that hereditary health law, a eugenic sterilization statute, which was to be the first step in a mass eugenics program that would claim the lives of millions of people over the next 12 years. 
So ultimately, ladies and gentlemen, it was not only uh, the rise of Nazi power in Germany, which put an end or at least a perceived end to eugenics in America, uh, but the Nazis' tactics became uh, so extreme with this extermination of so-called inferior races that the eugenicists of the United States really uh, had no choice. Uh, They either had to agree with such tactics or start condemning them, and due to attacks on allied countries and increasingly hostile tactics used by Hitler, uh, the proponents of eugenics in the United States chose to back off, at least visibly, on the idea and eventually join the fight to dethrone Hitler uh, some 12 years after he came to power. Yet several states in America still held eugenics laws for several more more decades and continued with the campaign of sterilization, though nowhere near as blatant and vocal as they had been doing so before the 1930s. In fact, many reports uh, from some states relay that African Americans uh, continue to be sterilized in the U.S. all the way up to the 1970s. And we can go in a a dozen different directions with this, uh, talking about World War II and Hitler's rise to power. Uh, from the Wall Street stock market crash uh, to the involvement of Zionism and the Zionist movement's role in creating, helping to create the atmosphere of World War II and the Zionist idea of the superior man or the ubermensch or even uh, the Judeo-Christian idea of God's chosen people or the term goyim, which is used as a derogatory term towards all non-Jews. There are many places we could go with this in regards to Hitler's rise to power and the rise of Nazi Germany, and the role of eugenics, as well as the U.S.'s involvement in this from uh, such companies as IBM and other corporations to IG Farben, uh, funding Hitler's war effort, and so much more. Uh, But that is definitely a topic for another episode. So today I just wanted to touch a little bit upon the hidden history of eugenics in the United States And one of the things I think about when people blindly say today to follow the science and to trust the science and to trust the experts. In 1911, a doctor with the Rockefeller Institute for Medical Research in Manhattan purposely injected 146 hospital patients, some of them children, with syphilis just to study the results. Uh, The Tuskegee Syphilis Experiment, which went on from 1932 to 1972, which lied to 399 impoverished black males, offering them fake treatments just in order to study the effects of syphilis on the human body. By 1947, penicillin had become a viable treatment, but the men were denied uh, penicillin just so the researchers could continue to study the effects of syphilis on human subjects. In a 1946-1948 study in Guatemala, U.S., researchers used prostitutes to infect prison inmates, insane asylum patients, and Guatemalan soldiers with syphilis and other sexually transmitted diseases to test the effectiveness of penicillin in treating the STDs. They later tried infecting people with direct inoculations made from the syphilis bacteria poured into the men's penises and on their forearms and faces uh, that were slightly abraded or in a few cases through spinal punctures. Approximately 700 people were infected as part of this study, which include orphan children. The study was sponsored by the Public Health Service and the National Institute of Health, the Pan-American Health Sanitary Bureau, now is known as the World Health Organization's Pan-American Health Organization and the Guatemalan government. In 1950, to conduct a simulation of a biological warfare attack, uh, the U.S. Navy sprayed large quantities of the bacteria uh, Seretia uh, (laughs) marcasins 
pardon my mispronunciation there, considered harmless at the time over the city of San Francisco during the project called Operation Sea Spray. Numerous citizens contracted pneumonia-like illnesses, and at least one person died as a result. The family of the person who died sued the government for gross negligence, but the federal judge ruled in favor of the government in 1981. So in 1950, we were spraying bacteria. Uh, Navy was spraying bacteria over San Francisco, made people sick. Somebody died. They sued the government, and the government won the case. Uh, the test went on from 1950 to 1969 there in San Francisco. And there are dozens and dozens and dozens of other government and military experiments on U.S. citizens, which run all the way into the 1990s and beyond, involving a Purposeful viral infections, psychedelic drugs on unwitting subjects, uh, spraying chemicals over cities, vaccine experimentations on unwitting test subjects, radiation poisoning, and much, much more, not to mention psychological warfare. And this is not a conspiracy. These are well-established and proven facts of human experimentation by our own government and military on unwitting U.S. test subjects. And there are dozens and dozens of reports with thousands of people affected over the past 50 plus years. If you do a simple Google search on unethical human experimentation in the United States in the 20th century, and you'll see these reports coming from mainstream sources and resources, and you can research it all for yourself. And I'm sorry, but anyone who doesn't think that the U.S. government and military has a long history of experimenting with biological and psychological weaponry is pretty much uninformed or willfully ignorant at this point, and at the very least, extremely naive. Because in some cases, the info has been around for decades now. But this is, again, for those that say, trust the science without questioning, without even having the ability to ask questions, without being labeled as a crazy, uh, paranoid ill-informed, uninformed conspiracy theorist, etc., etc. I think that at no other time in history is there a better time to ask questions than right now. We are at a very crucial point in human history. And while we do need to unite, uh, we need to question where we are uniting our forces and energies and intelligence and our souls. We should never conform to bullshit and mediocrity even if that's what the majority says and is the politically correct way to do things. And speaking of resources and fact-checking and researching, most of what I relayed today in this segment involving American-made eugenics comes from uh, my favorite book on the subject, and that is Who Should Play God by Ted Howard and Jeremy Rifkin from 1977. And if you want uh, sources for any of the quotes I used today, uh, any of the other information, the stats and figures, or just to dig deeper into the subject of eugenics in the United States, I highly recommend this book, Who Should Play God? It's a well-researched and sourced expose, not only on eugenics, but topics of designer babies, uh, genetic manipulation, transhumanism, and many other related topics of relevance and interest. And I have to ask, uh, with all honesty, what are your thoughts on eugenics? Do you think the ideology is evil, or do you think that in a more morally perfect society, eugenics could be used for truly positive and beneficial purposes? It's a shame that science always seems to go to the dark side when it could cure cancer and birth defects and diseases, but instead seems to itself only become a virus and a disease. So what are your thoughts not only on eugenics, but transhumanism in general and the usage of science and technology to create a new breed of human? Do you think politics in America is still on both sides promoting certain eugenics ideals? And a little off topic, but if you're a Star Trek fan, um, 
want to take a deeper look at uh, eugenics in the Star Trek universe, uh, you should check out three great books uh, in the Eugenics Wars trilogy by author Greg Cox. Of course, it's a fictional account, as it discusses in some detail the role of eugenics in the birth of the Star Trek universe. And just to be noted, in Star Trek lore, the eugenics wars of the late 20th century, and it is equated to World War III, and over 30 million people die in the eugenics wars in the Star Trek universe. Anyway, shoot me a line, send me a note, leave me a comment, uh, send me an email, say hello, and let me know your thoughts on this subject and anything we talked about today. Uh, send me a voice message or a clip, and I'll post it uh, on a future episode. Uh, likewise, if you'd like to come on as a guest, or even host your own segment on this podcast, or if you'd like your music featured here, send me a message. Or if you'd like to write an article uh, for the new zine that's coming out, or the websites, or have any artwork you'd like featured, I would love to hear from you uh, on that as well. I know there are a million podcasts and zines and websites out there, but I'm aiming for something a little different, and I hope some of you listening might get on board with that idea. So, dear weirdos and voyagers, uh, interdimensional realms, I hope this episode didn't run too long. Uh, I know it's over an hour, either way, but I appreciate it if you made it this far. If you enjoyed this episode or have any feedback or constructive criticism or disagreements, uh, feel free to hit me up at mad247 at weirdness.com. That's my email. Uh, mad, the numbers 247 at weirdness.com. Uh, likewise, you can now find this podcast at www.podpage.com uh, hyphen or, or slash mental hyphen pop. That's podpage.com slash mental hyphen pop, uh, which I think might very well be the easiest way to listen right now. Uh, mental pop is also on Spotify, if that helps, as well as a uh, Google podcast. And if you like this podcast, please share uh, with your friends, your family, any and all people who you think might appreciate it. Or you can also say hello at conspiraporn.com. Or if you really want to support these endeavors, you can check out uh, my original artwork and purchase some of it at www.geneticmemory.online. And why not stop by and make a comment or give a like over at MentalPop31 on Facebook or our private Conspiracult group uh, while you're at it. I give you a hint as to what the next episode is going to be about, but I honestly just really don't know. All I know is that I'm taking a little vacation with a friend uh, this coming week. Uh, we're going to go to Louisville. Uh, we're hitting up a jack-o'-lantern festival with 5,000 carved pumpkins. So I'm looking forward to that. And I hope all of you out there have some fun and interesting fall plans as well. And that goes for the vaccinated and the unvaccinated alike. Get out there and as always be safe. But live your life and don't let politicians dictate how you live your lives, how you think or how you see your neighbors or fellow human beings. Until next time, which will probably be in two weeks. Thanks again for listening today and peace profound.